0: Okay, good morning, good morning, everyone. (laughs) I can officially say welcome to Covenant. That's exciting. Um, There's restrooms in the back. Um, There's a little quiet room right here if anybody has kids that are restless or rowdy. And um, there's coffee. And make sure you have a bulletin and a hymnal if you need one, so... If you guys want to stand with me, we'll begin with the call to worship this morning. Um, I'm just reminded each week, what is this call to worship? It is not me calling you to worship, it is God calling us to worship Him through His Word. And some, in some traditions, people don't do this, but I think it's helpful. It reminds us each week why we're here. <laughs> it's not for entertainment, it's not... Um, To be motivated to go out and um, do a bunch of things, it's to worship God. And so that's what we do in the call to worship, appropriately named. So I'll read the bold section, if you'll read after me the non-bold. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymnal number 253, we'll sing the great hymn, Come Thou Fount. Confession of sin this morning comes from the law of God as written in the Ten Commandments. And this week we're looking at the fourth commandment. And we've been doing this for the last four weeks, and maybe some of you have been confused about (laughs) why are we talking about the law of God when it comes to confession of sin. And hopefully you've seen that it's the law of God that reveals our sinfulness. We see the law, we see its perfection, it's good, it's holy. And we see ourselves and we're not. And so um, this fourth commandment is talking about the Sabbath day or the sanctity of time for God. That written into nature itself is this idea of time for worship of God. And it says this in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Would you pray with me this prayer of confession? Almighty and merciful God, who is the fountain of every blessing, and whose name is holy. Often we have sinned against You and broken Your law. We have often neglected to set aside time to worship You in public and in private. Forgive us, Lord, and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, be gracious to us, pardon our iniquity, which is great, and by the power of Your Holy Spirit, give us life to serve You. Amen going to remain standing. We'll sing In Christ Alone, Found in the Handout in your bulletin. After we've confessed our sin, we're reminded of God's holiness and our unholiness, we come to this section, the assurance of pardon, where we're reminded that if we were to be found in ourselves and our own devices, it would be a problem for us. But God has not left us to that and has sent his son. And our assurance of pardon this week comes from Galatians 3, where Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Would you pray with me this morning? Gracious Father, we thank you for this time that we get to set aside every week to rest from our earthly endeavors and to spend time worshiping you. How often we fail to do this or how often our minds are distracted or concerned with other things. Lord, forgive us. Help us to um, turn to you to bring our sins and our transgressions to you, knowing that, as it says in 1 John, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we when we confess those to you. So help us to do that this morning. Um, We pray for our fellow brothers and sisters around the world um, for Covenant Grace Church in Ogden, Utah. We pray for them that the gospel would go forth there uh, at the church plant in Utah and that um, we pray for the various families that are seeking to become members there and longing to join in the work there. We pray that you would give them help by your spirit uh, to do that work. Um, we pray for the churches here locally Indicator, that they would proclaim the truth of the gospel and that sinners would come to repentance. And we pray all these things, Lord, not by our power, but by the power of your spirit. We need your help this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, and every week we... We do what's called a confession of faith or we confess together truths that have been passed down by other Christians, um, things that they have gleaned from the word of God. And our confession of faith this morning comes from an Orthodox catechism where it's asking this question. And it's a good question. And we should ask this question. How are you made right with God? How is a sinner like us? made right with God. If you would read along with me, the answer there found in your bulletin. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having sinned against all God's commandments and never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Amen. I was a little bit wordy, but (laughs) thanks for hanging in there. Um, Good morning again. I'm glad you're all here. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll we'll begin this morning looking at the book of Romans and more specifically chapter 8. And the book of Romans is in the New Testament. It is... Our scriptures are made up of two testaments, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Many of us are familiar with this. And we've talked before about how how does our New Testament begin. It begins with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not just a historical account of what Christ did and taught, but a theological account. They're telling us truths about what he did, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And then we've also looked at the book of Acts, which is after the Gospels. So if the Gospels are what Christ began to do and teach, the book of Acts is what Christ continues to do and teach from heaven, building his church after he sends out his spirit. And so the next book after the Gospels and the book of Acts is the book of Romans. It was written by the Apostle Paul. And it's a great letter to the church in Rome it was made up of both Jews and Gentiles and so we call these sometimes an epistle it's a fancy word for a letter so Paul an apostle who used to actually kill and murder Christians was knocked out knocked off his horse as you remember in Acts chapter 9 and he's saved by the grace of God and he becomes a Christian and an apostle really And starts writing letters to these churches. For various reasons. Sometimes it's theological. Sometimes it's practical. But this letter is trying to draw out. Some of the implications of what Christ did. In his earthly ministry. And what he's doing now in his heavenly ministry. um, Ascended to the right hand of God. So hopefully that makes sense. Just a little bit of context as to. What an epistle is. What a letter is. And so Paul is writing to these Christians in Rome. And. He begins with an introduction in chapter 1. You could look there. He begins with an introduction. He says he's eager to come to this church to proclaim the gospel that was declared beforehand in the prophets and has now been revealed. And so he's eager to come to them. And there's that famous line that Paul says, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But then he moves straight into chapters 1 through 3, where he begins talking about, condemnation so he introduces this letter and then he moves straight to condemnation and he talks about how both both jews and gentiles under the law of god are condemned and he does that very thoroughly (laughs) if you wanted to read chapters one through three of the Mm -hmm. book of romans it's a very thorough treatment of all people jew and gentile their condemnation before god And then he moves into the work of Christ in justification in chapters three through five. He talks about this great work of justification of God, forgiving our sins through the work of Christ and counting us as righteous, not by our works, but by the work of Christ. And so we come to chapter eight. You might say, Kendall, why are you doing all this? Just some context, because we're kind of jumping into the middle of the book, which I admit is a little strange, but there's great truths to be found in Romans eight. Many would argue Romans is maybe one of the greatest letters in the New Testament. And many would argue that Romans 8 is maybe one of the most theologically rich, deep chapters in the book of Romans. There's great truths such as this work of the Spirit, um, God's work in Christ, all these great things that we know and love. And so this morning we're gonna look, we're gonna begin. Hopefully, in eight weeks, we're going to look at the whole chapter of Romans 8. We're going to break it up into eight different sections, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. And why Romans 8? Why this book of Romans? As I was thinking about it recently, I don't know about you, about you all, but there's sort of this weight that I feel, <laughs> this weight, and maybe it's Everybody in the world, just it's been a weird year, a weird last year, and there's just a weight that everybody feels. Maybe a year ago, if you look back on your life, you'd say, I was pretty laissez faire about life, you know, it was going well, all these things, and so much has happened in the last year, and there's just this heaviness, this weight that I think we all feel in some ways. And not just outside of ourselves, right? We see the world around us, we see the turmoil and the tumult, and we see everything that's going on, but even within our own hearts, right? We feel this weight, this um, this heaviness that we can't really shake. And more than just what's outside, what's inside, right? Maybe it's a loss of job, a loss of loved ones recently, and maybe it's even our own sin that burdens us, our own transgression before God, and. I say that because some of you in Romans 8, the top of it might say life in the spirit. If you have any headings in your Bible, in the ESV it says life in the spirit. And I sort of want to look at this whole chapter through that lens of life in the spirit. What does life in the spirit look like? What does it mean? And I think you'll get a lot of different answers if you were to go up to somebody, maybe even a regular Christian on the street. You can think in your head what does life in the spirit look like? What does it mean? You might get lots of different things. (laughs) You might get, oh, it's only missionaries that live a life in the spirit. Every other regular person can't really do that. You have to be on a mission somewhere. Or maybe you'd get something like life in the spirit looks like ecstatic experiences all the time. It's about um, living in sort of this euphoric state, a sort of Where you're not really present with your mind and you're living life in the Spirit, whatever that means. And so there's a lot of different answers to that question, what does life in the Spirit look like? And our goal, as we look at the book of Romans, is to answer that question and see how Paul answers it in in this book of Romans. And so Paul is really dealing with this tension, as I said, between the flesh, between the world, between all these things that wage against us, and between the Spirit. And we see that in the first couple of verses, this tension between the spirit and the flesh, between the law and the gospel. And Paul is really wrestling with these things. And hopefully, as we study God's word this morning, this will become clear what life in the spirit looks like. So if you want to follow along with me, I'll read verses one through four. I'll pray for us and then we'll we'll look at the text. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says this in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. There are deep truths here, but there is immense truth. Practicality for our lives, Lord. And as we ask these difficult questions, how do we live the Christian life? How do we deal with our sin and our condemnation? Help us to see what life in the Spirit looks like and help us to live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit and faith in what you have done for us. We ask all these things in your Son's name. Amen. So, lots of words there, lots of truths. Let's, let's look at it this morning. So, verse 1 in chapter 8. Paul is assuming a couple things, right? We're sort of jumping straight into Romans 8. If you were to read Romans 7, you would see Paul struggling with his sin, with his flesh. He's very open and honest about it. He says things like, The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do... I do. Hopefully we can all relate to that a little bit as Christians. And so Paul is very honest with this struggle with the flesh. The the very things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the things that I want to do, I don't do them. And so we come to this great passage in Romans 8. But right before that, it's important to understand what Paul says. He's crying out. And he he says this in verse 24 of chapter 7. He says, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then it comes to these great words in Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So these are great words by Paul, but he's assuming a couple things. And so let's look at a couple of those things. The first thing is he is assuming condemnation. He's assuming condemnation. If there is therefore now no condemnation, the implication is that there at one time was, right? If there's now no condemnation, Paul's implying that there at one time was condemnation. And so what does he mean by this? What does this mean? What is this condemnation? Well, as I said, chapters 1 through 3 lays this out very explicitly. That not only Gentiles, those that are not Jewish, but also Jews, are condemned before God because of His holy law. So, we might ask this question. We don't use this word a lot. What does it mean to be condemned? What is Paul assuming? He's, he's assuming that we at one time were condemned. What does this mean? Three things. You might have heard it, you know, a condemned house down the street. We kind of think of it like that. It's run down. It's not inhabitable. Or maybe a prison. Someone that's going to prison might be condemned to a life sentence or something like that. How do the scriptures talk about it? Three things. To be condemned is to be a breaker of God's law, okay? It's to, be, it's to break God's law. So we are called, as we looked at this morning, to love God, to love our neighbor, and we don't do that. And so we break God's law. That is one part of what it is to be condemned. The second part is to be cursed to death. It is to be cursed to death or with death. And we see this in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve create in God's image. They are called to obey God, to follow his law, And to not eat of the tree. But what do they do? (laughs) They disobey. They break God's law, and then they are cursed with death. What does God say? If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So they're cursed with death. So they break God's law, they're cursed with death. And finally, to be condemned is to be expelled from God's presence. It's to be expelled from God's presence. That's what we see in the garden again, right? They break God's law, they're cursed. And they're kicked out of the garden. And this is what it means to be condemned. This is an example. You see it with the people of Israel, right? Moses brings the law down from the mountain. <laughs> What's the first thing they do? Make a golden calf and worship it, right? They break the law instantly. And so they're cursed, right? There's all these curses in the Old Testament. And they're usually expelled from God's presence in the land. Whether it's through exile or death or whatever it is. So this is what it means to be condemned and so we can say with confidence that to be condemned is to break god's law to be cursed and to be expelled from his safe presence right god is omnipresent he is at all times everywhere present so we can't be expelled from god's presence ultimately but we can be expelled from his safe presence if that makes any sense so adam and eve were kicked out of the garden israel was kicked out of the land and so to be condemned is to experience death both physically Spiritually and ultimately eternally. This is to be condemned according to the scriptures. And Paul says these very strong words in Romans 3. At the conclusion of this, he says this, quoting the Psalms, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so these are very damning words, if I can use that word, of all people, right? That we are condemned before God because of our sin. And so all that to say, Paul is assuming that as we come into Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation implies that there at one time was condemnation. And so we need to ask this question. How does someone go from being condemned before God to being condemned? Having no condemnation. How does someone go from being guilty before a holy God to being justified? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And so Paul here gives us the answer. If you want to look there, at the end of verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ? I think that's a good question. What does it mean to be in Christ? Is it a mere proximity? Is it just coming to church? Is it doing churchy things? What does it mean to be in Christ? Maybe some of you have heard verses like this. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Sort of an interesting (laughs) phrase. I don't know about me or you. I've never been crucified, (laughs) right? physically. But Paul can say, I've been crucified with Christ. Other places in Scripture say, Romans 6 actually, Paul says, in baptism we were baptized into Christ's death. It's sort of interesting that in baptism we've been baptized into his death. So we've been crucified with Christ, we've been baptized into his death. And there's this other great verse in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. These are sort of, if you've never been around church or really looked at these passages, they're kind of weird, right? I've been crucified with Christ. I've died with Christ. If anyone is in Christ, what does this mean? Theologians call this union with Christ. Union with Christ. What is it to be united to Christ? It is to receive all the benefits that he won. It is to be united to him by faith And receive the benefits that Christ has won. So Paul is saying there, in Christ's crucifixion, we've been crucified, in a sense, to our flesh, to our worldly life. We've died a death, right? To be in Christ is to be a new creation. This is a work of the Spirit. And so Paul here in Romans 8 is saying there's no condemnation for those that have been united to Christ. And so we can say this, whoever is in Christ, united to him... His person and his work. For those people, whoever they are, there is no condemnation. And if we, we've looked at condemnation and it's a pretty serious thing, right? It's a pretty serious thing. So how is this possible? How can someone go from condemned to not condemned? From guilty to justified? And we'll see that this is a work of the triune God. And so as we go... In verses 2 and 3, we see Paul sort of explain this a little bit. He says this. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. So what does Paul say? That we've been set free. That those who are in Christ have been set free by the Spirit from the law of sin and death. What does this mean? (laughs) We don't use that phrase a lot, the law of sin and death. What does this mean? This is the law as a covenant of works. We've talked about covenant theology the last couple weeks What is the law as a covenant of works? You might ask, Kendall, that's not very helpful. (laughs) The law as a covenant of works. Because of Adam's sin and ours, the law of God, even though it's good, even though it's right, even though it's holy, because of our sin, it can only produce in us what Paul says, sin and death. This is what Paul wrestles with in chapter 7. He's saying... I see the law, I see this command, do not covet, Covet, but all it makes me want to do is covet. <laughs> it makes me want to have things that aren't mine. Someone tells me, obey your parents, honor them in the Lord. It makes you want to not do that in our sinful nature. And so the law of sin and death is the law as a covenant of works, as a weight on unregenerate people. Because the law for sinners can only produce Sin and death. It cannot produce righteousness in life. It was intended to do that, but it can only produce sin and death. Like Daryl said a couple weeks ago, the law is like a mirror. It shows us our sinfulness. It shows us where we have dirt on our face, but a mirror cannot clean us. It only shows us our sinfulness. So when we look at the law, we see that we're sinners. We see that it brings about death in us. But the law itself has no power to help us clean ourselves up. It can only say do. It cannot give us the power to do it, if that makes any sense. And so, because of our sin, because of our flesh, this law that was meant to bring life, right? It was meant to bring life. The law is good. What does the law say? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are good, holy, and just things. But because of our sin, we don't do those. We can't do those. And so it only produces in us sin and death. But Paul does not leave us there. That would be bad news. (laughs) If we were left there, that would be bad news. But Paul does not leave us there. And God does not leave us there. What does it say in verse 3? For God. For God. In Ephesians 2, what's it say? You who were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he says in verse 10, but God, very similar. For God, this is the work of God, that God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. The law couldn't do it. The law can't do it. God has done it. Well, how did he do it? By sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, you guys know what I'm going to say. Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Amen. And so, we can be assured that God is working, that Whatever is going on in our condemnation, God has not left us to our own devices. He has sent his son. And so what has Christ done? It says he sent his son. Who is his son? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do? He assumed our nature. He took on flesh. He assumed our liabilities. He was born under the law. And he assumed our duties. Born under the law. All those things. And bore the punishment that we deserved. And so... All those things to say that Christ, in being sent by the Father, has accomplished redemption. That's the fancy word that we say. He's accomplished redemption. What does this mean? That the Son of God took on flesh and lived the perfect life. We were talking about condemnation earlier. What is it? To be condemned is to break God's law, to be cursed, and to be expelled from God's presence. What did Christ come to do? To fulfill the law where we had broken. As we read in Galatians this morning, to become a curse for us, we who were cursed. And to be expelled from God's presence. That's sort of a weird way of saying it. But what did Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ, in saying that, is taking the wrath and the hell that sinners deserved and is absorbing that So that we might be made right with God. And so we can say that redemption was accomplished by Christ. So the next question we need to ask, we're condemned, right? Christ has come, accomplished redemption. How does the work of Christ come to us? How does something somebody did 2,000 years ago, thousands of miles away, what does that have to do with me, with you, with anybody? Paul gives us the answer again. He says that it is by the Spirit of God. That the Spirit has given us life and has set us free. So Christ, in pouring out His Spirit, after He accomplished redemption, the Spirit comes and applies the work of redemption, applies Christ's perfect righteousness to our account and covers our sin. This is what we call justification by faith alone. This great doctrine that Paul talks about earlier it is the fact that sinners that are rightly condemned before God can be made righteous, not by their works, but by the work of Christ alone. So this is what Paul is talking about here in verses two through three. And so Paul is, acknowledges that there's this tension, right, that there's this tension between the flesh and the spirit, that for those that are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation the Spirit has set us free from this law of sin and death, but we still need to walk according to the Spirit. What does that mean? The Spirit, in saving us, gives us new hearts, gives us new affections. And so the law is no longer this burden on us that says do, but gives us no power to do it. Because we've been given a new heart by the Spirit, we actually want to obey God's law. We actually want to do the things of God, not to earn anything from him, not to earn justification or salvation, but out of gratitude for what he's done for us. And so this is what Romans 8, 1 through 4 is showing us that for those that are united to Christ, there's no condemnation and that a life in the spirit is one that is not bound to the law as a covenant of works, as this weight, but is one that desires to do God's law To walk according to the Spirit. So this is Romans 1-4. through And as we do every week, we take a step back and we try to apply these great truths. Because we just did a lot of theology. There's a lot of deep things in there. What what should we take away from this passage? Three things. Every week, three things. Sorry. (laughs) I need to mix it up
1: sometimes.
0: (laughs) The first thing. Behold the work of the triune God. Behold the work of the triune God. What does triune mean? The Trinity, you've, maybe you've heard that word before. It is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. How do we see that in our text today? Verse 3, For God has done, this is the Father, by sending the Son, who has poured out His Spirit. The work of redemption, the work of salvation, is not just, just Christ, or just the Spirit, or just the Father, It is a Trinitarian work. It is Father, Son, and Spirit, united in purpose to bring about the salvation of God's people. And this is humbling because we see that salvation is all of God. It's not our work. It is God's work. The Father sent the Son. The Son accomplished redemption. The Spirit now applies redemption to God's people. So we can take joy knowing that Salvation is all of God. This is very humbling. The second thing, you might have to stick with me on this, that the believer in Christ is both set free from the law and bound to the law. The believer is both set free from the law and bound to the law. That sounds like a contradiction. First, the believer is set free from the law. There's this amazing little analogy that paul gives in chapter 7 you could look there if you wanted he's talking about this idea of someone being married to a woman and that this married woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives but if he dies she's no longer bound to him this is basic law if your husband dies you're not married right You were married, but you are not married now. You're no longer bound by law to that husband. And he uses that as an analogy to talk about the believer and their relationship to the law. And hopefully we can see how these things are connected. He says that you have died to the law. What does that mean? The law, as this weight that only condemned believers, you're dead. In Christ, it says, you were crucified with Christ. Why does, he, why does Paul say that? To be crucified with Christ is to suffer death. It is to be united to him. So when he died, we died to the law. Meaning we died to it as this weight that only condemns. Christ has paid the penalty. We could say it like this. Um, what is it? Before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair... And tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Christ paid the penalty for our sin. So there's no more condemnation for the believer according to the law. So Satan will try to tell us that we're guilty before the law, that you don't measure up. You've broken God's law, you've sinned. He's not going to accept you. He can't accept you. You've gone too far, you've done too many bad things. God cannot accept you. But for the believer, when we're reminded that we're united to Christ, we've been set free from the law. It no longer condemns, it can no longer accuse us because Christ has paid the penalty. There's no more wrath, there's no more power to the law in that sense. But in another sense, the believer is not just set free from the law, the believer is also bound to the law. What does this mean? That's kind of confusing. If I struggle with how to really explain this, but I sort of already said it, right? This work of the Spirit of God in the believer is to give them a new heart, right? How does Ezekiel put it? I'll take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If you think about a heart of flesh, it's not hard like a stone. <laughs> it's soft, it's pliable, it's sensitive to the things of God. And so a heart of flesh is no longer hard to the things of God, to God's law. It desires to do it. And so what do I mean when we say we're bound to the law? Well, people would say this to Paul. They would say, your gospel, your truth of this being set free of the law, that sounds like you can just do whatever you want. (laughs) It sounds like you can just live a life of sin. And then Paul says this, should we sin that grace may abound? Should we just keep on sinning? Should we just do whatever we want? God's just going to forgive us. He says, by no means, by no means. So in a sense, the Christian is bound to the law, not to earn anything from God and not to out of fear of God or condemnation, but to serve God out of gratitude for what he's done. We've been given new hearts. This is just how the spirit works. He gives us um, a new heart. And so people might push back on this and say, no, Kindle, believers aren't bound to the law. You need to just live your life by the power of the Spirit. And then I would ask that person, what does life in the Spirit look like? And they might say, well, it looks like loving God and loving your neighbor. And I'd say, that looks a lot like the law of God, <laughs> right? So how, does, how do we live our Christian lives? That's really what I'm trying to say is, how do we live our Christian lives? What motivates us? What do we look to? We seek to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we seek to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what I mean by bound to the law we don't get to make up what we think is right and good God has told us and as first John says his commandments are not burdensome to us right because we've been given this new heart so we've seen the work of the triune God the believer is both set free and bound to the law in a sense and then finally in Christ there is no condemnation in Christ there's no condemnation Those are strong words. If we see the seriousness of what it means to be condemned before God, Paul saying there's no condemnation is a big deal. And I think it's very practical in a sense because as believers, as Christians, we're tempted to do one of two things. On the one hand, we're tempted to hide from our sin. We're tempted to kind of push it under the rug and say, it's not a big deal you know, we kind of have our pet sins. They're not a big deal. You know, it's not that bad. Maybe I'm just stealing or maybe I'm just, um, I don't know, not obeying my parents or whatever it is. And so we sort of make a light of them. And that's not to see the seriousness of our sin. That our sins are worthy of condemnation. So we're tempted to hide it. And in another sense, we're tempted to beat ourselves up for it, right? We, we have soft consciences. We sin before God and we think to ourselves, God could not forgive me. I'm so guilty. I'm so in need of help, but God couldn't save me. And so these words of Paul, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, are great words of hope. (laughs) They're hope for the believer that we see both the seriousness of our sin and the grace of God. In Christ Jesus. And so what should we do this morning? Should we run from our sin? Should we try to beat ourselves up and give ourselves 39 lashes? What should we do? How do we apply this text? We run to Christ. We run to Christ. We look to him by faith. What is faith? We've said it a million times. It's receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. So often we're tempted to look inward... We sin, we mess up, and we look in, we see nothing but filth and wretchedness. And we feel condemned, and rightfully so sometimes. And so if we only look inward, we're just going to be brought to despair. But what is faith? Faith is looking outside of ourselves. It's looking to the objective work of Christ. He fulfilled the law. He suffered the punishment. And He, by His Spirit, has applied that work to those that have faith in Him. And so, what does life in the Spirit look like? It looks like recognizing our guilt before God, seeing the great grace that God has given us in Christ, and out of gratitude, serving God and obeying His commands. This is life in the Spirit. And we'll see this further as we look at Romans 8. So that's Romans 8, 1-4. through 4. And hopefully this will lead perfectly into the Lord's Supper which we'll take for the first time this Sunday morning, what is the Lord's Supper? It's remembering what Christ has done on the cross. That He didn't leave us to our own devices. He shed His blood. His body was broken. He hung cursed on the cross for us, for our salvation. And so this is not a magical thing. (laughs) There's not some sort of magical transformation going on with the bread and the wine behind me. But it is a means of grace, as we've talked about. We're looking back, we're proclaiming, and we're looking forward to Christ's death and his resurrection when he comes again. And so we can say with confidence that as surely as we break the bread and eat it, and as surely as we pour the cup and drink it, that Christ's body was broken for us. That his blood was shed for us when we remember these things by faith. And so this morning, if you're not a believer, I'd ask that you not come forward and just take time to consider um, what was talked about today in the work of Christ. But if you are a believer, this is good news. (laughs) This is good news. This is hope for weary souls. This is assurance of God's pardon. And so we should come this morning before we eat and drink. We should confess our sins before God. We should examine ourselves as Peter says, to see whether we're in the faith. But we shouldn't stay there. We should come rejoicing. We should come remembering what Christ has done, that as surely as we eat and drink and we crunch the bread between our teeth and we drink the cup, that Christ has spilled his blood for us. So we're reminded of Christ's words when he says this. On the night he was betrayed, he says, this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me. And he takes the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's pray. We'll pray over the elements and then we'll come forward. Gracious God, we thank you not only your word that you have spoken to us in your holy word, the good news of what Christ has done, but you have given us a visible word in the Lord's Supper, where every week we're physically reminded that your body was broken and your blood was shed for sinners like us. Help us to remember not just how much we need you, but how much you have done to seek and save those that are lost. May we come this morning, not only confessing our sins, but rejoicing in what Christ has done. And may you give us faith this morning to believe these things for our spiritual life. In your name we pray. Amen. So we'll just form a line in the middle. Um, Just come as you're able. You can circle back to your seats, and then we'll take the cup and the wine together. Um, Andrew's going to play some light music as we do that. So come. forget what I'm going to say. (laughs) So, this bread that we break is a communion with the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all your sins. This cup represents Christ's blood that was shed, take, drink, remember, and believe that Christ's blood was spilled for the forgiveness of all your sins. Let's pray real quick. Lord, we thank you for this this Lord's Supper, that we're reminded of all that you've done for us in the person of Christ. May our hope today not be in ourselves, in our works, and may we not feel the condemning wrath of God without feeling the great assurance of pardon that you've brought by your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to trust in that work today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you want to stand with me, we'll respond with singing. The song, It Is Well, found in hymnal number 214. is going to pass out some baskets if you want to give that way. Or if you go to the website on the front of your bulletin, you can find a giving tab there. So let's just, um, Andrew's going to play lightly. Let's just pray um, for the Lord's provision. Thank him for his provision and um, his grace to us in this way. Lord, we thank you for All that you've given us, not only um, spiritually, but financially, and um, just the common grace goods that you've given us, a warm place to worship and live, and um, food, and uh, the jobs and finances that you've provided us. We pray that in worship of what you've done, that that we would give to you, um, give to your work of the gospel. Um, not again, not to earn anything, but out of gratitude for what you've done. So we thank you for your provision. We pray that you would um, use these offerings as a as a gift and an act of worship to you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. You millennials in your technology. Okay, let's close with singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below.